There's some renewed concern this afternoon regarding children and hepatitis. Sick kids reporting seven severe acute cases of hepatitis of unknown origin. And for the very latest on this story, let's welcome in our medical medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchetz joins us once again here. Dr. Belchetz, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here. You and I spoke of this uh, a few weeks back when it was first being uh, reported around the world. Uh, what is the latest? What do we know about uh, the seven cases at six kids of uh, hepatitis of unknown origin? Do we have any further details, doctor? Unfortunately, we have not learned a lot more since we last spoke about this. This still really is something that is baffling medical experts around the globe. Now, the good news is that we are not seeing a massive increase, at least so far, in the number of cases of this hepatitis of unknown origin. So as of May 1st, uh, there were just under 300 cases around the world that had been identified. And there have been certainly more identified in certain locations in over 20 countries since then. But this is not something that appears to be going up exponentially, where it would have, at least from the numbers that have been identified so far, turned into something where we're starting to see thousands or tens of thousands of cases, at which point we would start to be very concerned that there is something more spreadable, more concerning going on. So again, still very small numbers, which is a good thing. Uh, There are things that we've been quite sure we've been able to rule out. So at this point in time, we're very sure this is not due to hepatitis viruses. Uh, We're fairly sure this is not related to COVID, although that is not 100%, but it does seem like many of the children that are being affected by this have no tie to a recent COVID infection. And the other thing, despite a lot of misinformation on this topic that is circulating online that we can say with 100% certainty is that this is not related to COVID vaccination. Uh, For instance, in the United Kingdom, uh, the vast majority of the cases that they have identified of this in the United Kingdom, not one of them has actually had the COVID vaccine. So this is very much not related to vaccination. And, and I certainly have seen my share of misinformation on social media claiming that fact. So I just want to double down on that. So okay. overall, I think at this point, more questions than answers still. Yeah, appreciate that uh, because you're absolutely right. Uh, misinformation, I guess it's pervasive when there's something that's unknown to us all, and that's what we're all afraid of, right? Uh, afraid of the unknown. And is it, that what makes this situation, although, as you mentioned, the numbers are low, Dr. Belchetz, is that what makes this so scary for parents? I think it's scary for two reasons. Scary, one, because we have no idea what is causing it, which means that we don't know how to protect against it. And I think the second part of what makes it scary is that for a small subset of these children, the outcome of these children, the outcome has been very severe. So about 15% of these children have had liver disease that was so severe that they required a transplant, which is obviously every parent's worst nightmare for their child to have to go down that path. Uh, and I think that level of severity is certainly contributing to a great deal of the worry here. All right, so symptoms. Let's talk about that. What should parents be alert for? What should they be looking out for when it comes to uh, possible uh, symptoms that their kids might exhibit? So a lot of the symptoms of an acute hepatitis can start out quite nonspecifically. So things like abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. So keep an eye on your child if you notice any of these kinds of symptoms. And, And I know that this occurs all the time in children. So if you notice something that's out of proportion to what you've had in the past, not getting better quickly like what you've noticed in the past, certainly have an extra degree of suspicion. Uh, The specific symptoms that we start to get very worried about things like hepatitis are any yellowing of the skin, something that we call jaundice, which most parents would be aware of, something that we see frequently when children are very, very young just after being born, but this is something different later in life. So any yellowing of the skin is a very worrisome sign, and you should uh, certainly go for emergency medical attention if you see that. 
Also, abdominal pain that is specific to the right upper part of the abdomen, which is where the liver is located. If you feel that there's pain or tenderness there, get yourself checked immediately or get your child checked immediately. And then a couple of other things. Sometimes we can see things like pale stools in conjunction with that yellowing in the skin. Uh, there, there's, there's certainly other things like fever and, and unspecified uh, just general unwellness and malaise and fatigue that goes with this. But for the most part, really the specific things that you're looking for are that yellowing of the skin, the right upper abdominal pain, and overall unwellness of your child. If you have any suspicion whatsoever, it's very easy to pick this out with some simple blood tests. So if you have any suspicion of this in your child, seek out medical attention right away to get the right tests done. All right, joined by our medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchetz, also making medical headlines on this Tuesday afternoon, the Canadian Institute for Health Information. They are out with a, a new report on uh, pandemic uh, backlogs when it comes to uh, elective uh, surgeries. And Dr. Belchetz, I guess the upshot of this report is that uh, the backlogs have improved, but long wait times for many that have been awaiting elective surgeries, they remain. I think this is a, a good news, bad news story. Certainly what we've seen is for the priority surgeries, the ones that we tend to put more resources toward to keep wait times, wait times down, we saw the numbers uh, dramatically worsen as a result of the pandemic. So, for instance, when we think about things like hip replacements and knee replacements, our guidelines here in Canada, and certainly I would say that the guidelines in and of themselves are, are very long wait times, but our guidelines say that we should be seeing uh, patients within six months of the request for a surgery. And what we saw uh, before the pandemic is about 70 to 75% of people were getting these surgeries within that six-month time frame before the pandemic. And in the early months of the pandemic, it dropped to only 50%. So only half of these people were getting that. So in the example of those kinds of surgeries, it's gotten quite a bit better. So it's now over 60% of people getting their surgery within six months, but certainly not back to where it was before the pandemic. And again, I'll reiterate that six months is a very long amount of time to wait when compared to international average wait times for these kinds of procedures. So even getting back to where we were before the pandemic is not a great baseline to be getting to. So we're worse than we were. The good news overall, I would say, is that we are trending in a positive direction now. All right, but do we have to uh, look at to what you just mentioned there, how long our wait times are? Because I think there's, you know, coming out of the uh, pandemic, if indeed uh, we are, hopefully, uh, that, uh, you know, we've asked a lot of questions regarding our healthcare system, how we can do better, how we can be better prepared for maybe uh, the next pandemic. And it's certainly exposed some cracks in our uh, healthcare uh, system. One of those has been these uh, backlogs. And the fact is, you just mentioned there, it wasn't uh, great to begin with uh, the wait times and they got worse uh, during the pandemic. So is that something that you think we really need to look at? We really need to drill down on. I think it's something that we absolutely have to look at. It was a critical issue before we ever went into the pandemic. As you probably know, most of our hospitals were operating at 100% or near 100% of capacity going into the pandemic. As I just mentioned a few moments ago, wait times were very long, and wait times for most specialist appointments and procedures in Canada are were, before the pandemic, the longest average wait times of any country in the developed world. So we certainly weren't in a place that was what I would call best performing or good enough prior to the pandemic and all of that was exposed uh, for being a great risk factor for not being able to cope with the pandemic when it struck so the fact that our hospitals had no excess capacity to use the fact that wait times were already at an awful unacceptable level meant that when they got even longer this really got into a place of true human suffering i think all of this was exposed that we really do need to build more capacity into our system we do need to shorten wait times i think as hopefully the pandemic begins to recede 
I really do hope that this wait time issue in Canada receives the attention that it deserved before the pandemic began and continues to deserve now. Yeah, and to that point, just finally, I know the federal government, they've dedicated its $2 billion, a lump sum payment to help the provinces work through any pandemic-related uh, backlogs when it comes to uh, elective uh, surgeries. But uh, we need long-term funding. Would that be fair to say, do you think, Dr. Belchett's uh, long-term planning, long-term funding to make sure that we never find ourselves in this situation again and that this backlog uh, does get uh, better, that the wait times are reduced? I would agree. I think $2 billion, unfortunately, in the, in the circumstances of Canadian healthcare spending is really just a drop in the bucket. Um, what we really need is we need not only long-term funding, but we need structural change in terms of how we provide healthcare in this country. What we've seen year in and year out for many decades is, despite many, many increases in funding, we haven't really been able to make a dent in wait times, and this is a much broader discussion, but when we look at the effectiveness of healthcare spending in other countries, so places like the UK, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, et cetera, what we tend to see is that despite them spending less money per capita on healthcare, they have much lower wait times and have much more effective outcomes. So I think it is time that we take a step back and see what we can learn from some of these other places rather than doubling down on some of the strategies that we've employed that certainly just have not shown success to date. All right, Dr. Brett Belchetz. Dr. Belchetz, appreciate it as always. Thanks so much for this. My pleasure. You have a great day and stay well. All right, you too. And we're back after a quick break here in the Jeff MacArthur Show. Stay with us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink. 